I'd have known that song, we'd have done a lot better. Good morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the Lord's Day, a day to rest and come aside and enter your presence and to hear from you. We thank you for your written word that in our times we have the privilege to hold in our hands. We thank you for the living word, the one who speaks to us, the one who gave himself for us, the one we are being conformed to be like. We pray that you would use your word today to shape us and mold us for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. We've been uh, looking at Leviticus in the Tuesday night Bible study, and we came to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we found an interesting verse that you're not to uh, mix two kinds of beasts together, you're not to mix two kinds of seeds together, and you're not to wear clothes that have mixed threads together. That same uh, idea is found in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22. You don't need to turn there. I just want to read one verse for you. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard becomes, your Bible will say, defiled. The text is just not there, lest it becomes holy. Holy. Now, I'm not going to explain the verse. I'm going to use that verse to explain another verse. So you're not supposed to wear two kinds of threads in your clothing. Only the high priest could wear that because he's the holiest. He gets to go to the holiest place. The rest of the people didn't get to wear that. But they were told, and you know this, they were told to put tassels on the four wings of their garments, which is uh, in your Bible probably translated corners. And these tassels are each to have one thread of blue. So they're wearing a linen garment with a linen tassel, and out of the bottom of that linen tassel, four tassels on each garment, comes one blue wool thread. The tabernacle is made to look like the top of a mountain, a cloud. And when uh, the tabernacle was put up, everything was covered. Nobody got to see the furniture in the temple. It was all covered in a certain manner. And uh, the Levites would carry the furnishings, and there were certain marching orders and they would go out on a march, going through the wilderness. And in the march, of course, it would bring them to battles. Sometimes you read numbers, lots of, lots of battles. 
people are walking with their linen clothes with four tassels. Those tassels, according to Numbers chapter 15, are to remind them of all of God's commandments so that they will not look at what their eyes desire and what their heart wants to play the harlot, but they will keep his commandments because he took them out of the land of Egypt to be a holy people. They're supposed to look at those tassels and remember the commandments with that one blue thread. What's happening as they're marching is they're to look like a heavenly army. A heavenly army. They're walking on the ground, but they wear garments that have wings to make them like angels. They're supposed to be flying in the air. It's a picture of flying in the air. And as they're marching along, there's the Ark of the Covenant on two men's shoulders, set up like this. It is the highest thing on the march. There's nothing that sticks up higher. And it is covered in blue. The bottom of their garment has a blue thread, a tassel. And at the top of the march, it's blue. It ties the whole picture together as holy. When we come to Romans 8, that is the picture in Romans 8. We're going to look at it again in connection with the subject we've been talking about because what it is, is it's a war chapter. And that's what we're engaged in, a war. We see it more and more in our country now. Uh, as uh, troubles afoot. And uh, now the battle lines are being drawn. Unfortunately, the church is a little mixed up. So you have some people over here and some people over here. Now, they're still uh, mostly within the church. We're talking about strong evangelicals who believe the gospel. But some of them are moving towards the... mm, critical race theory, and others are not. They're still brothers and sisters. In other words, I'm telling you, we're not talking about unbelievers here. But outside of the church, we are talking about a culture that is being dragged into the critical race theory. Now, most of 336 million Americans have not a clue about it. They don't understand it. They just participate in it. And most of us probably don't understand it that well. And even when we're done, we're not going to understand it that well. We're going to understand parts of it. And so people say, well, you know, I want social justice. Well, who doesn't want social justice? Everybody wants social justice. I would think, of course, there are some few crazies and evil people walking around in this country who are white supremacists, and they want to get rid of people of color. They're evil. They need to go. They're the ones who need to go, not the people of color. So we have these two groups, and then we have this world culture all around us that is dragging the United States into an open society with no leadership, 
where you can do whatever you want to. In the end, they don't want law. Now, I don't think they're going to get there, but that's what's going on right now. That's what they're working towards. And the premise, let me give the premise, and we're going to turn to Romans 8. The premise is in Black Lives Matter, the premise is that there are people who are racist and don't know they're racist and can't even change that they're racist. They will be racist from now on. It's like, it's like people who believe once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Does the Spirit sanctify or not? So we believe, well, if I get involved in a sin, certain sins, then I can't possibly get out of it. I'll be forever in it. That's not true. But that's what's being taught about racism. That certain people, basically white people, are racist and they are the hegemony. And the hegemony is this privileged power class who shapes law and discussion and business and economics to favor white people. And they'll never be able to change. And so what we have to do is we have to, we have to we have to de-white them somehow, get them less white, but we still, we, we, we gotta get other people over them to, because they can't ever change. I hope you don't believe that. This country did have racism. It has some now, I'm sure. This country did mistreat buy and steal people of color, kidnapped them, brought them to the United States, sold them, made them work for them. All of that's true. And uh, this persuasion, of course, was legally set aside with the emancipation of pro the proclamation of emancipation. And at the end of the Civil War, it took some time, and slaves were set free. But there was a culture of prejudice. It wasn't until 1965 that black people were allowed to attend Dallas Seminary. People say, well, okay, your forefathers did that, so you're part of it. Is that true? If my dad kills somebody, do I thereby become part of his murder? The answer is no. We're not going to look at it this morning, but Ezekiel 18 makes it very clear. 
sons will be punished for their sins. Fathers will be punished for their sins. But the fathers won't be punished for the sins of the son. And sons won't be punished for the sins of the father. And what the gospel is, is it's a gospel of grace. Now, just setting everything outside, everything I've set aside now, let's remember, we've all come into the world as sinners and despicable sinners. You know, don't say, well, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. No, what you did, what we all did is we just, we shook our fist at God and said, "Mm -mm, not going there. That's despicable. That's why Israel had little blue threads hanging down so they could look and remember, oh, commandments. I was brought out of bondage in Egypt to become God's holy person. And now I belong to him. And I look down and I see my tassel and I remember. Can't follow what my eyes want. Can't follow what my heart wants. I follow what God wants. So there's an army marching. And as I say, it's, it's Romans 8. And now we're in that battle today. Of course, in, in, in Moses' day, it was with swords and clubs and stuff fighting. We don't do that today. There are reasons for that. We fight differently. We don't fight according to the flesh. Our weapons are spiritual weapons. They're weapons of logic, that is, logos, biblical reasoning, to tear down fortresses and to bring every thought captive to God. That's the weapon we wield. The weapon's broader than that because the word weapon, you'll discover, is translated instrument sometimes in your Bibles, and weapons come out to be your feet and your hands, and my goodness, comes out to be you. And the weapon we use to fight with is, is God's word, prayer, and us, me, you. And we can fight with these weapons by, oh, going, you know, wherever, to Yugoslavia or Cambodia and being a missionary there where we meet people and show them hospitality and begin to talk with them about the gospel. And we're fighting a battle. We don't have to be unkind about it, but it's a battle because the warfare is against a spiritual person, Satan, who's taken that person captive. We're fighting a battle, and we're going to do it with words. And, uh, you know, we all live in our culture here, and we, we... We use those same weapons. We talk to people when we're at work or maybe our neighbor or have someone over and talk to them. We use those weapons, but that's not the only weapon we use. We use the weapon of prayer where we come and we talk to the one seated at the right hand who's in charge of everything, and we ask him to help us, and he comes forth just just like we read. Come down. 
from heaven. Oh, he did come down. But we want his help. That's a weapon. But there is even a broader weapon. And it's the weapon of how we live. So how Israel is supposed to live is spelled out very clearly in the Old Testament. You look at the book of Deuteronomy, all kinds of laws about how to live, how judgments are going to be made in, in uh, the theocratic state. Now we come to the New Testament and there are, there are laws, but they don't tell us, you know, should you buy a house, shouldn't you buy a house, should you do this, should you do that. It doesn't tell us things like that. But it does tell us certain things. And uh, I, I guess what I'm looking for today is, we're going to just trace Romans 8 once again, just a little bit. But I'm looking for us to decide to live intentionally. That is, we got a little blue thread hanging down to remind us who we are. And so we can't live by what our heart wants or what our mind wants. We have to live by what God wants. And that's called holiness. Holiness. And when we live by what God wants, it shapes who we are. It shapes who we marry. It shapes how we work. It shapes how we view trouble. It shapes how we view ourselves. One of the most despicable, despicable sins is what? Love of self. The love of self takes us astray all oh, so many times in a week. We get angry because we didn't get what we want. Why? We love ourselves. I should get what I want. All, all kinds of things like that. We need to live intentionally. Okay, I'm going to choose this kind of girl or this kind of guy. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a family. And we're going to live like this because we're on display. We're in a war. And people are watching. And so what we have out here in our culture is people gone crazy. Not everybody, but it's, it's, it's growing. And they need somebody to watch. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we were looking at this last week, and if you would, I'm in the wrong place. Helps to turn to the front of the Braille book. Okay. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living 
and holy sacrifice. <laughs> There's three things strung together. Living holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, which we saw means your, your, logical, your logical worship, your, your logical work. And we talked about it last week as being the priestly idea where you bring in your sacrifice and you're going to give yourself to God. You're holy, but it's going to be an animal who dies. You're going to give yourself to God and he wants you acceptable. So when you come to the tabernacle, you're going to make sure you're clean. You're not going to be unclean. You're going to, you're going to do what God has said. So you're going to be acceptable. And of course, you're a living sacrifice, but the animal's going to die, not you. And this is the outcome of all that Christ has done. So now let's turn, just, just keep a finger there. We'll be flipping back and forth. Turn to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, uh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So, one through four, we all know it. This is, this is the pinnacle of Romans right here, chapter 8. And now he's, he's moving into how our life is going to look. And what he's saying is, okay, look, this terrible, terrible, despicable sin, Christ, has paid for it. He became the sin offering. We put our hand on him, and he died in our place. We identified with him. And he took our sin in his body on the tree, and we've been set free, and the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us because of Christ. And he goes on to look at that. Notice verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is uh, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so we have some in the flesh, some in the spirit. The ones in the spirit are the ones for whom Christ died. That's, that's you and me. Our sin's been taken care of. 
and we've been made different. Now, our mind is not on fleshly things, but our mind is on spirit things. Now, just jump down then to verse 14. And he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Christ, in order that we might be glorified with Christ. Now, here's where we pick up this picture. We were enslaved, now we're set free, and we're on a march. Now, it's not a ark covered up with a blue covering that speaks of heaven moving us out. Now it's the Spirit who lives inside of us, moving us forward on the march. That's what he's talking about. And he goes on then, as we've seen in verses 18 and following, to talk about these people who are, you and me, being co-glorified with Christ. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in, uh, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then verse 22, 23, 26, and 27 talk about groaning, but we haven't left the subject behind. And you come to verse 28 we still haven't left the subject behind. So look at verse 28. He says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good by those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and whom he predestined, let me read that again. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, we talked about this, so I just want to bring up again. For new, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all in the past tense, and so all of it has been done. Now, we're justified, but the declaration, the final declaration of justification will be at the coming of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ. We're also glorified, but we're not glorified like we're going to be fully glorified at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, we're glorified. And the importance in Romans is the fact that we've been changed, we were in charge of the world, and Adam threw it away, and now we're back, we're in charge of the world under Christ. Okay? Now, move on to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, we tend to think of that uh, just in terms of our personal salvation. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is seated at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So here's this picture of Christ. God, God has given us everything in the person of Christ. He dies, he rises, he's seated at God's right hand. So we're, we're in safekeeping. There's nothing that can throw us out of justification. There's nothing that can happen to us in the skirmish of the battle that we're in that God does not oversee and he sticks to it. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is to show you when you then when you come to verse, look at the, verse 34 again. Who is the one who condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Rather, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice these terms. These are war terms. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, we don't think about war the same way today because right Right now, you can go to war and you don't have to leave your desk. You've got a little joystick and you are flying a drone over Afghanistan with bombs on it and you're going to bomb somebody. You can be eating pizza, drinking a cup of coffee while well, you're killing people. But war's not like that out in the battlefield. War brings about hunger. War brings about distress and trouble. War brings peril, all these things. If you, if you look at World War I or any, any previous war, it, it ravages the land and the people are starving. There's trouble when war comes. 
Well, we don't think of war that way today. It's more like a video game. We play it. We're not out there fighting that kind of war. But all of this is here to tell us about war. The way we know it is because of verse, verse 36. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now that comes from Psalm 44. And we don't have time to read all of Psalm 44, so I'm just going to tell you about it. And then we're going to have some things to say. Psalm 44 is a step pyramid psalm. It comes in four steps. It has ten lines, then eight lines, then six lines, then four lines. So you're walking up this step of you're walking up a ziggurat as you say the psalm. That's, that's the form. The form makes a difference. So the point is you're climbing closer and closer to heaven as you say it. The psalm is a lament psalm. The first section is ten lines of confidence. God, this is what you've done in the past. You brought Israel out of Egypt and you destroyed our enemies and brought them into the land and you planted them. Then comes the step up where it's a lament. God, now our enemies are trouncing us. They're destroying us. Then you take the next step up and it's a protest. God, you did all of this to us. You made us a reproach and a byword. You gave us into the hands of our enemies. You made us run in the face of our enemies. You sold us without making a profit. You did all this. And then you come up to the final step, and it's a petition. God, wake up. Don't slumber. Save us for the sake of your loving kindness. Now at the third, end of the third step, the pyramid step, the third step, which is protest, that's where this is quoted in Romans. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, God, you're destroying us and we have no answer. We don't know why. And the Psalms defends the nation. We didn't violate your covenant. We didn't pursue another God. Yet you did this. And there's no answer. Why, why is it happening? No answer comes. But it's a war psalm. And now we need deliverance. So out in our culture now, there's battle. And the battle is growing strong. And we're in the fight. And uh, we're going to lose some of the skirmishes, but we're not going to lose the battle. Because the church will prevail. It won't, it won't be done away with. 
And the battle is directed straight at Christianity. So within this CRT, critical race theory, there's the privileged class that holds all the power. And that class is, uh, well, they're trying to undermine it. They want to get rid of it, whatever they think it is. But you see, it's, it's not just white males. Because you see white males, they set the laws and they make life hard on other people. But what it is, is it's also Christianity. Why? It's Christianity because Christianity says you have to live this way, not that way. Being part of the LGBTQ plus is sin. It's offensive to God and he's going to judge you. So Cain and Abel showed up to make an offering before God and Cain brought vegetables and Abel brought a bloody sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. And Cain, out in the field, slew his brother Abel. Why? Well, 1 John tells us. 1 John chapter 3 tells us he slew his brother Abel because his deeds were more righteous than his own. People are guilty. They know they're guilty. And they don't want you sticking your finger in their face saying you're guilty. They don't want you reminding them that God has an order, an order he created. And it relates to men and women. It relates to how families are put together. It relates to all kinds of things. But they don't want that. What do you think they're going to do? Well, I don't know what will happen in the end. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if preachers in this country end up in prison. Don't be surprised if some people end up dead. Why? Because it's a vicious hatred that is going on. Why? Because their deeds are unrighteous. In the psalm that we opened up with, David wanted deliverance from the aliens. And he said, they're aliens and they're full of deceit. And the right hand, the right hand is nothing but falsehood. That's what's happening right now in these various movements. They're nothing but deceit. Their facts are not factual. They're not true. 
I want you, I recommend, I urge you to read Vaudi Bauckham's book, Fault Lines. So in Fault Lines, you can just go down statistics, not put together by Christians, and you can discover that this whole idea that blacks are more likely to be killed by police than whites just is not true. More whites were killed this last year when they didn't have a gun in their hand than blacks. But of course you don't hear about that because it doesn't fit the narrative of what they want. And what they want is really not for justice for black people. I mean, that's the narrative. What they want is freedom to be homosexuals, lesbians, and whatever they want to do. And Christians stand in the way. I urge you to get the book. Mark Fossilino came and gave me a good idea. I hear he, he doesn't really usually have very good ideas. <laughs> but this time it was a great idea. I'm just pulling his leg. He said, Mr. Nelson, because last week, I, I guess it was the last week I recommended we read a book a month. He said, let's start a book club. What a good idea. So a book like Fault Lines, everybody could read in a month. And then who, those who are willing to come and talk about it, we, we could talk about it. We're in a battle. And there's going to be some wounds. And we're not going to understand it. W why is God allowing this? I don't know. The church certainly is straying. Maybe that's why God is allowing it. But I can't say for sure that's why God's allowing it. But the thing is, Psalm 44, when you get to step three and there's a protest, God, you did this and we didn't forsake you. God, you're doing this and we have kept your covenant. It's not because of sin. They don't get an answer. And God is uh, forcing us into the fray. And here's what I want us to think about. I, I want us to think about, you know, we, we can say, well, I could read that book and maybe I won't understand it. That's true. It's not an easy read, the book. It's an interesting read, but it's not an easy read. And probably some of you, if you started reading it, you say, oh, I don't know about this. And you'd come back and say, Craig, can I have an easier book? Oh, yeah, of course. So not everybody in this room is going to read it. Not everybody who uh, is real intellectual in this room is going to read it. But what I want us to understand is there's nothing to do. It's not like we can go down and knock on a building and argue a case against what's happening in our country. We can vote at the poll, but there, there's, it's not like, you know, you got a flat tire and you get out the jack and you jack the car up and take the tire off and put it on a new one, fix the You can't do that with this kind of problem. But what you can do, what you can do is, well, you can reach out to people who are LGBTQ plus 
because they can come to Christ. Remember? Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were effeminate. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were revilers. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That's one way to fight the battle, is to not be afraid of people and give them the gospel. But that's not the only way. The more, I could almost say the more important way is for MBC families to buckle down and be okay. Good, solid, Christian families. So that when people look in, they're jealous. Like Cain was angry because he was jealous of Abel. They look in, they say, wow, look how that family operates. Look how close they are. Look at how all those kids obey their parents. Look, those kids are going the direction their parents want them to go. Look, that husband treats his wife so nicely. That woman loves her husband. Look at that. That's the fight. That's the fight. Because you know what? A transgender person is not going to be happy forever. They're already not happy. A lesbian is not going to be happy forever. They're already not happy. They're following down a path that just leads to, well, it leads to hell for one thing, but even before they get to hell, it leads to destruction. There's nothing on that path in the end that will make them love life. But we have the answer. And if we are a church of families who are saying, okay, we're, we're all in this together. Oh, one shouldn't say that these days. That's too much of a phrase. We're all in this together. Let's all get COVID. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm talking about living intentionally. That is, the beginning of Romans we didn't acknowledge God. We come to the end of Romans. We have a new transformed mind. But transformed doesn't mean you just think it up here. Transformed means working it out, living it out. Let's be intentional. Let's say, okay, I have a community here, a church community. Let's be like this together. Each family doing their very best with prayer and Bible reading and living for Christ intentionally, and then each family intentionally being with other families in the church, and then each of us intentionally reaching out to neighbors so they can look into our Christian family and say, wow, that's quite something. Stand with me. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
All those who are being led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Lead us out this week and every week into the battle with joy and confidence because nothing can touch us that you don't allow. You gave up your own son for us. You'll freely give us everything we need. We know that. Here it is in Romans 8. And we know when we go out into battle, if peril comes, distress, trouble, death, it's because you're in charge, you're sovereign. You do it. But Lord, we confess, we profess, I'm a child of God, which means we're being led by the Spirit of God. Now, Lord, give us the grace, the strength, the might, the fortitude, the will to follow the Spirit. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.